Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I hope that you all enjoyed listening to Tuesday's interview with Robert Villanueva from Q6 as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. He had so much insight into threat intelligence and current concerns as Russia's economy continues to decline due to sanctions based on their invasion in Ukraine. I've received a lot of questions about what should we expect from that region, as often Western countries are already the targets of Russian cyber fraud. And so this was a great opportunity to speak with one of the world's top experts on threat intelligence from that part of the world. And I really appreciated all of that he shared and really think that if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, that you will learn a lot. I did. On today's episode, I'll talk a little bit more about Visa and MasterCard's announcements and impacts regarding Russia. I know that's something that several people have asked about recently, so I'll dive into that, as well as an update on the infamous fraud technology company that never really was, NS8. Their founder, Adam Rogas, is in the press again. He did plead guilty, and he also gave an interview to the journalist at Forbes who has covered his story since the beginning. Uh, which was around August and September 2020 was when it all broke. But there are new updates and I can share a little bit more information than I could even in real time on the episode I posted back in September 2020. I think it was episode five of the Fraudology podcast. So I had just started it in August and it was titled A Fraud Among Us if you're interested in in going back and listening to that. And then I'm going to wrap up with more fraud and scam focused TV shows on streaming platforms. It is just... They're calling it the Gilded Age for fraud TV. Can you hear me roll my eyes? I know that it's something that we all kind of enjoy and it's the convergence of work and downtime slash fun. So I'll talk about a few of the new ones as well as a few that just have been out for a while, but a compiled list of sorts. So that's going to be today's episode. I'll start and this will just be kind of a brief update, but I didn't cover this on last Thursday's solo episode solely because I was focused on providing a recap from the MRC Vegas 2022 conference. But on March 5th, this that feels like forever ago, but Visa and MasterCard announced that their cards issued by Russian banks won't will no longer be accepted outside of Russia and that cards issued outside of Russia won't be authorized within the Russian Federation, and that includes ATMs and within stores. So I know that there are a lot of issues for expats living in Russia, or I don't know if anyone's a tourist there at the moment, but people who aren't from that country being unable to get money out has been a challenge among so many other things there. 
I wasn't sure how big Visa and MasterCard were in Russia because in 2014, and I mentioned this before on an earlier episode, just focused on some of the increased ATO reports I've received from a lot of companies focused on digital currencies like e-gift cards and crypto and digital banks, et cetera. And Robert and I obviously talked about that in depth on Tuesday. But back in 2014, when the U.S. put some sanctions on Russia for their annexation of Crimea, Visa and MasterCard weren't as prolifically used there. But now, uh, since then, looks like they're, that 74% of all cards, credit and debit cards issued within Russia are Visa or MasterCard. So, you know, that's three-fourths of the amount of cards there. So that's a big deal. Visa and MasterCard each make around $1.1 to $1.2 in annual net revenue from that region. Uh, that includes interchange, interest, card fees, etc. I didn't actually compare it to other markets like the U.S. or U.K. or EU, but I imagine it isn't as much, but that's still a significant amount of money. Amex also suspended acceptance in Russia and Belarus, and some Russian banks have been moving quickly to have their cards be issued with China's Union Pay in place of Visa or MasterCard. And I'm not sure how that will impact Western companies. So I don't know if you'll be able to accept those cards that are issued by Union Pay. If you accept Union Pay, I'm still trying to get details on all these things. They're changing very quickly. And I know a lot of you that are having to deal with sanctions and AML compliance are just buried. So I, I know this is just very much in flux and changing all the time, but I just kind of wanted to give a little bit of an update because I know that that's something that a lot of people are needing clarity on because it impacts daily business and you certainly don't want to be found ignoring sanctions. But at the same time, it can be very challenging to know exactly who owns a bank account or where a company is actually based, especially if they have ownership papers in Panama or Canada or wherever else it is. So we're going to move on to a topic that I think is a little bit of a blemish on the fraud industry, to say the least, especially the fraud technology industry. And I do know for those solution providers who get really frustrated when enterprise merchants don't take them seriously or question their legitimacy. I mean, a big reason for that is because of NS8. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I think what I'm going to do first is read this article written by David Jeans at Forbes, he wrote most of the articles about this issue back in 2020. The majority of this article, it's not that long, just to kind of catch everyone up, especially for those of you who weren't listening to this podcast back in episode five. It's probably a lot of you. And then we'll share a little bit more details from what I know. So the article is titled The Idea of Failure. Startup NS8's former CEO tells Forbes what drove him to commit $100 million in fraud. Time was running out for Adam Rogas, or Rogas, I apologize, Adam, I'm saying it wrong. It was August 2020, and the board of his fraud prevention software company called NS8 was about to discover there was no cash in the bank and that their CEO had been lying to them for years about revenue figures before personally pocketing millions of dollars of investors' money, according to the U.S. Justice Department. Now, in an interview with Forbes, hours after pleading guilty to a count of fraud in U.S. federal court in New York on Wednesday, Rogas says that his actions were driven by a fear of his company failing. And then this is in quotation marks. 
The fraud happened because there was an inordinate amount of pressure, he says, both on myself internally and just in general with having that many people dependent on what we were doing and what we were building. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> I missed a line. This is big statements claiming the company had up to 40 million in cash to investors who gave the company more than 100 million, including 17.5 million that he personally received by selling shares on the secondary market. The company laid off its 200 workers and began winding down. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams described Rogas as the proverbial fox guarding the hen house in a press release Wednesday. While claiming to be in the fraud prevention business, Rogus himself frauded investors in his company of over $100 million, Williams' statement said. Now, Rogus will be held accountable for his fraudulent scheme. Facing up to 20 years in federal prison, Rogus told Forbes he takes full responsibility for his actions. I feel sorry to the investors, to the employees, to my family, to my daughters, Rogus said. This is not at all who I am, other than the fact that somehow I did this. Rogus co-founded NS8 in 2016 after running a series of marketing and software companies. He was a well-liked figure in the NS8 office, former employees previously told Forbes, and the company became one of the hottest startups in Las Vegas as it jumped from one funding round to another, including a $123 million raise led by Lightspeed Ventures in 2020, a deal in which Rogus cashed out $17.5 million by selling shares. But the financial statements Rogus provided to raise funding were falsified for years. He was the only person with access to a company account with Bank of America that received customer payments and revenue, while investor funding and payroll went in and out of a separate account accessed by other employees, according to the Justice Department. At one point, Rogus told investors that there was $23.7 million in the Bank of America account, while the real number was $5,636 according to a 2020 Securities and Exchange Commission complaint. Reporting by Forbes at the time revealed that Rogus's secret was uncovered when he failed to meet NS8's then Vice President of Finance at a Bank of America branch to hand over the account's login credentials. The saga also raised questions about the lack of due diligence conducted by NS8's investors, including Lightspeed Ventures and AXA Venture Partners. Rogus says the pressures facing startup founders was in part what led him to defraud his company. There's a tremendous amount of pressure in a growing company. He says, the belief I had in what we were doing drove me to a number of small, poor decisions that snowballed me or snowballed into me ultimately making these false representations. In the case of NSA, Rogus says the company was adding customers, but the problem was that the company wasn't adding paying customers. As fast as it should have been, in quotation marks, Rogus said. He adds, there was still this concept of growth, this concept of users that supported the company. These were all metrics that were growing. In the end, Rogus says that his singular focus on growing the company led to cross the line into illegal activity. All I could think about was buying us more time, he says, and ensuring the company would survive. Rogas isn't the only startup founder in recent years to have been indicted for fraud. The recent trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of blood testing startup Theranos, found guilty on multiple counts of wire fraud, described a founder who was driven to succeed at seemingly any. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. 
You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. cost. There is no doubt that the idea of failure is a difficult one for the type of personality that goes into a startup, Roga said. Unfortunately, the people that make really good leaders also don't deal well with failure. That should never be more important than being true to your principles. Last week, a federal judge approved a plan by NSA, now known as Cyber Litigation Inc., to repay defrauded investors $38 million as part of a Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceeding started after Rogas's 2020 arrest. Rogas is expected to be sentenced in New York on August 10th. No matter his likely prison time, Rogas says he plans to spend his life paying back some form of restitution. What form that may take remains to be seen. I went into all of this trying to build something and trying to build value, and through the process, the unwinding, all the things that happened, it's created nothing but a negative, Rogas says. It's very hard for me to deal with that. So... That is the most recent article. And I don't usually read articles in depth, but I just are in full, but I just felt like that was going to be better and more, just more explanative of what happened than any summary I could create. But here's a few more details I can add as someone who is in the fraud prevention industry and started getting questions about who is this NS8 company just a few months before the news spread. It was actually like right before their first or their loudest raise, I guess, their most publicized raise by Lightspeed and others, the 120 million, I think. And I can't remember what the evaluation was, but it was insanely large. And with the biweekly merchant calls that I host, at least one of them, there were a few merchants that said, who is this company? Like, do we need to know about them? Because that was a big amount. And that can get some some people thinking, well, wow, they must have something special. I had heard some troubling stories about some of the sales tactics and calls 
and attempts made at enterprise merchants by NS8 salespeople. It, it, it was really strange. It turns out there was really never a product, especially not for enterprise merchants anyway. And I mentioned this all on the podcast episode in September of 2020, but they really just had a Shopify plugin that only had a few points of fraud prevention analysis. It really wasn't enough for any company that of size. I don't even know if it would honestly be enough for small businesses, depending on what they sold to correctly evaluate risk. But I think where the real money lies, obviously, is with enterprise merchants. So he hired a whole fleet of salespeople. And just like Elizabeth Holmes, he sought out investors with no real anti-fraud knowledge. So Elizabeth Holmes sought out investors with no real healthcare knowledge. And the sales reps that Adam Rogas hired had never been in the industry previously. So they didn't know what to ask or anything. And they weren't ever trained on a product. They were never really told what it was or what its features were. Uh, and I've been told that by several people that were in sales for NS8 at the time, but they did some crazy tactics as far as if there was a merchant of record provided processing for other companies. And I know that sounds weird, but happens all the time. They would go to those smaller companies and say, hey, you need to contact the company that's processing all your payments on behalf of you and tell them that they really need to use NS8 because you guys are losing a lot of money to fraud. They had no idea. But they'd tell people that didn't know about fraud, oh my gosh, like this company says that we're losing a lot of money. We need to contact our provider. And then that provider would finally gave in to a phone call and the phone calls were just horrific as far as, well, what do you need? Oh yeah, 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 we can create that. But not knowing any details, not knowing anything. There was one, um, I don't know, I hesitate to even say it. I, I won't say it directly, but there was one sales call that ended with a, a really bad blunder of words that was really embarrassing and inappropriate just because there was a lot of pressure, but they didn't really know what they were selling. It was very awkward and strange. The secondhand accounts I've been given of some of those sales calls before it came out that there really was no company were more insane than other calls I hear about. And you guys all know I hear a lot about, you know, good vendor behavior, bad vendor behavior, crazy vendor behavior. But this is beyond that. They did pay a minimum fee. And I think this was, as far as the timeline goes, I think, well, it had to have been spring of 2019. They paid a minimum fee to get a small booth at a large fraud conference. And this is where I think they really tried to get some credibility. Because they exhibited at that conference, they were able to get a list of attendees and they were able to leverage that list of attendees into making investors believe that they were talking to all these really big name brand companies. They knew the names of the people who ran fraud prevention at those companies would make it seem like they were talking to them and on a first name basis. I know that that was leveraged quite significantly. This is one of the many reasons why I personally think that solution providers that are uh, exhibiting should be vetted a little bit, but that is a whole other topic for another podcast. So I think the issue was with COVID, they were thinking they were going to go back to conferences in person and be able to sell in person. And they just couldn't because COVID canceled the majority of fraud conferences in 2020, especially in person. But also they were days, and this is something I, I can't share beyond this at all, but they were days from either acquiring or being acquired by a real fraud company, a fraud prevention company. But I, I will say that this company based their decision on 
all the false documentation. And because the investors had done thorough or what they were told were thorough investigations into the financials and others, they okay about that transaction. And I can say that that provider felt like they dodged a real big bullet. And I think that that was one of the things that Adam Rogas was trying to buy time for because he knew that that would add legitimate funding either through the acquisition or being acquired. I think he was buying time for that, but it's good news that it, the timing happened when it did, just because it didn't get any worse than it was. The other people that were kind of fooled by this, and, and this is, I'm sure that the fraud prevention companies involved would love for me to forget this, but unfortunately, I'm like an elephant. And I think a lot of merchants are too, but I really distinctly remember so many of the fraud prevention software companies or SaaS companies really appealing towards wanting the sales staff for NS8 because they were also under the impression that NS8 was a legitimate company and they all wanted their Rolodex. They all wanted their them to bring their users to their company. And so there were several CEOs of well-known fraud prevention companies soliciting or posting on LinkedIn and other places if you were impacted by NS8 or whatever it was, please, we have open positions, come apply to us. But a lot of them learned that a lot of the people that were working in sales really didn't have software sales experience. They've been trained in tactics that do not work in enterprise sales. So I think a lot of them kind of scattered a little bit. But that's not to say that there weren't one or two that were that were pretty good and have had a decent career in fraud prevention sense, but I would say the majority are off selling in other industries now. But the other piece is that for a few weeks after the news came out, not only were these fraud prevention companies thinking they were in competition for the staff of this company, but they thought they were in competition for all of these customers that NS8 supposedly had. And the amount, the dollar amount for Google AdWords went up to almost $100 per click for whenever anyone Googled NS8 because these competitors wanted their customers and obviously the sales reps and the contacts, but there was no there there. There were no customers to get. I mean, there were some, like I said, there was a, a Shopify plugin, but the majority of those customers, and this was all covered in previous news articles about this, were paying less than $100 a month for very limited fraud prevention intelligence. So, or they had free trials. So there really just wasn't, there were no name brand companies. There were no companies that had any real sales or real value. And I don't even think there were any, any contracts beyond the Shopify extension. So there, I don't even know if there was an API. So anyway, that's our industry's fraud story. I imagine it's only a matter of time before this is covered in a documentary or retold in a drama because that is where our society's headed. And I've mentioned this on previous episodes before, but I also enjoy watching TV for lack of a better term. But it also it kind of makes me wish that we could all watch this without giving the numbers, right? Like, we could all just pass around a DVD of it or something. So that way it wasn't popular. So the people whose life story it was wasn't collect, weren't collecting money, but also you know, just so it's not as popular. But I do hope, and I've said this, I know I've said this before, but I do hope that this entertainment, this form of entertainment can also provide some education. 
I hope that in watching some of these newer shows coming out and listening to these stories like NS8 and so many others, Elizabeth Holmes and Simon Leviev and all these other names that come out. The Frank Abagnale true story, by the way, which I know a few of you read the book that Brett and I covered several months ago about the real story of Frank Abagnale. All those things. I hope that some people are also, after watching these things, are going to take a minute when something sounds too good to be true and, and just say, hmm, is it true? Is it not? Whether that's a phone call, whether that's a dating app, whether that's a business opportunity, whether that's working for a startup. I do know just back to NS8, I think that there is just a lot of a lot of confusion from companies that are in startup mode who think that fraud prevention is very easy, that it's very similar to do than a lot of other services on a SaaS platform. And so I think that it's just really important for people to know that this is, it's a complicated science, online fraud prevention. It's not something that can be done in just a few signals. It's not something that can be done easily. And my hope is that that lesson has been learned, but there were a lot of people and companies involved in elevating them, especially the investors. And if investors hadn't invested money, there wouldn't have been all the other bluster that there was. But transitioning back to, I just kind of wanted to finish that thought for whatever reason, but transitioning back to fraud TV shows, I covered the Tinder swindler on a few episodes with updates and things like that. I do know from people in Israel that he is uh, persona non grata, as they say. Well, that's <laughs> that's not Hebrew, but you know, what I mean, he's not. He is not a welcome member of society in Israel, but that is where he presides. Because if he were to leave the country, I think he would risk extradition to some of the countries where he defrauded girlfriends or ex-girlfriends or marks or whatever we're calling them. But newer TV shows that just came out in March, one of them is called Bad Vegan, kind of the unofficial name for the person who this docuseries is featuring is the vegan Bernie Madoff. So to be honest, I've only seen about 80% of the first episode while I was cleaning out my garage this weekend. I was just trying to multitask. So I can't give a very good recap about it, but I do know that there was a Ponzi scheme involved and she, the chef owned a really popular vegan raw restaurant in New York City in the early to mid 2000s and or early to teens of 2000s and several so well-known celebrities ate there. Alec Baldwin met his wife there, which speaking of fraud, if you aren't aware of Hillary or Hilaria Baldwin's fall from grace a year or two ago, that just is interesting that that happened at her restaurant because it just seems like was there fraud in the water? Was there a scam in the water? I don't know. That's on Netflix. The Dropout is all about Elizabeth Holmes. As I mentioned her just a minute earlier, she did create Theranos. I remember when it was, you know, when I was traveling all the time for my last full-time job, I would always get a copy of Forbes or Fortune or whatever, some business wired and business magazine to read on the plane. And I remember having a couple of copies of the magazines that were featuring her and she was a big deal but it turned out that her product didn't work either and instead of being honest about that early on and maybe recalculating and pivoting she doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on that claim and is now been found guilty of four of the counts of fraud i think there were 10 or 11 that were against her 
but that is a docu-series on Hulu. I've only watched a little bit of the first episode as well, so I apologize. I haven't watched all these either, but with traveling and just with how much fraud has increased lately, I'm busy, and I imagine you guys are too. But another new one is called We Crashed. It's the WeWork story on HBO Max. I'm interested in watching that. I didn't see the documentary on Hulu about this before, but I do know a few people in the trust and safety in cyberspace that did go to work for WeWork behind the scenes and know that it was a similar story, but there also was a lot of issues with the CEO and just lots of ideas of grandeur and all of that. I do think there's something to be said for what Adam Rojas said at the beginning as far as Sorry, towards the end of the article I read, as far as the personality that's driven to start a startup, that's not true for all of them. That is for dang sure. But there are some that are a little narcissistic and maybe they believe so much in what's possible or what they think can happen that it almost becomes true to them. And then they just can't reconcile with failure. And that can cause things like WeWork, as well as another story that isn't so much fraud related, but it's more technology related. And that's Super Pumped, the battle for Uber on Showtime. I'm a big Joseph Gordon Lovett fan, so I'm looking forward to watching this. I'm trying to convince my husband to be interested in it. But I had a really good conversation with a former Uber employee a couple weeks ago. You can guess where. And I asked them if they were going to watch the show and, and how they felt about it. And they said they are. And they feel like it might be validation for what they went through as an employee there. And I, I know several people that worked there during that time, as well as a couple of people that still do. I know it's changed quite a bit in the last few years. There was a woman on the trust and safety team who was very good and very smart, who I had asked to speak at a conference in 2019. And they were on the agenda for that conference and then said, ah, we were just told that because of all the news that kept coming out about Travis Kalanick, their CEO, that year, no one was allowed to speak at conferences anymore. And I believe she said something like, especially not as a woman. That's just from memory. So I'm not reading that directly right now. But so I think I know there are a lot of people that listen to the podcast that will be fascinated by that. And I think it's good to know that all that glitters isn't gold. I've been working with some of the biggest companies in the industry for the last 10 years. And some of the stories I can tell anonymously and off the record definitely show that like there's a lot of companies that people think are a big deal or run really smoothly that aren't. There are a lot of companies that fudge numbers and other things, and then there's others that don't. So it's just some of it is just the nature of the times we live in with how quickly tech is changing and growing and how in a lot of cases, perception is reality. And so some companies choose to focus on how they're perceived versus how they're really run internally. So those are some of the TV shows and movies on my queue and on my list to watch this month or in the near future of some period. And then also just some of the ones aren't as new, but might be interesting. The Tinder Swindler, obviously, Inventing Anna. I talked about that a few weeks ago. I found it pretty good, but there are several people who did not like it. So I understand both sides. I'm not sure if I wasn't so interested in fraud and how people work and just sociology and all that, if I would have enjoyed it as much, but hard to know. Generation Hustle on HBO Max. That's each episode talks about a different kind of hustle in quotation marks. Uh, there is one episode about Anna Delvey. There's also one about a scam rap and how methods to defraud specific companies online are shared in rap music. 
and I found that interesting, though odd. McMillions was the story of fraud around uh, the McDonald's Monopoly game back in the 80s and 90s. Dirty John is more of a kind of a dark romance scam story, but if you liked Tinder Swindler, I think uh, Dirty John would be one that you would enjoy. As well as the Fire Festival documentaries, there was one on Netflix and one on Hulu. And then also Dirty Money, which I haven't seen yet, but I plan to. It, it covers different people in each episode, and not all of them are, are well-known stories. So that is kind of my what to watch segment. Never did I ever, when I started out in this industry <laughs> over 15 years ago, did I think it would be interestingly enough, interesting enough to be really top talked about TV shows and movies and documentaries. However, I always thought they should. And I think any fraud fighter listening has their share of crazy stories that people wouldn't believe. I certainly have mine. So, and and we know that people enjoy it, right? So, like I said, hopefully it's going to be educational. Well, with that, I am going to end today's solo episode. I will be back with a great interview on Tuesday. And as always, I really appreciate you listening and sharing this with your networks. I am so proud of the community that we are building and have built and look forward to speaking with you next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.